We are continuing on with our series called The Story as we look at God's Word today. If you have your smartphone or your tablet, you want to open up the Evangel app that you can download from the App Store. And uh, on there are all the notes of the scriptures and stuff that we'll be looking at today while we look into God's Word. And so we've been working on this series. This is after today, we're going to take a break for Christmas from the series and come back to it in January. But we've been doing this series called The Story where we're going through all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, the whole Bible, from beginning to end, chronologically. And uh, some of you have bought this version of the Bible, which uh, works with the story, and we go through one chapter every week. And I've had some of you every single week going, Patty, I never looked at it this way. I never saw it this way before. This is really helping. And so that's what we're doing. And so today we're looking at um, chapter 9 in the story, which is the story of Ruth called The Faith of a Foreign Woman. And just to give you some background, we've talked about... Israel's history until now. There's a covenant with Abraham. All people will be blessed through you. And then they go into Egypt and then they're, they're brought out of Egypt, out of slavery. And then they wander around the desert and then they go into the promised land. And then once they are in there, in the land that God's given them, then they sort of are in different tribes and, and a loose connection as a nation. And we talked last week about the time of the judges when God would raise up a different person at different times in different places to either deliver them from oppression or to uh, pr- pr- uh, give them a word from God or to lead them or whatever. And so this is, this is still the period of time that we're in right now as we look at today's scripture. We're still in this time of the judges. We think that maybe it's during the time of Gideon, who we talked about last week, but we're not sure. But that just kind of gives you a, an idea. And here's how this story begins today. Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Okay? You need to say Moab with me. Ready? One, two, three. Moab. One, two, three. There you go. Maybe just turn to the person beside you and go, are you awake? You good? Okay? It, it just helps if we do this together. Okay? So in the country of Moab. And the man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, let's just pause there because there's this phrase, and they went to Moab as if that's a normal thing. That is not a normal thing. We don't know why this family was going to Moab. It says there was a famine, but not everybody moved, and so we don't really know. But Moab, just just to let you know, is not part of Israel. It's not the land that God has given them. It's a different people group, a different nation. And apparently at this moment in Israel's history, there appears to be some sort of peace between Moab and Israel. But that is not generally the case. Historically, Moab is bad news. Let me, let me just give you a little bit of history of Moab. Okay, we're going to get a lot of history today. So just start taking notes now because halfway through you're going to wish you had. So Moab, if you remember way back in Abraham's time when we were talking about Abraham several weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago, and Abraham had a nephew named Lot. We didn't talk a lot about him, but some of you have heard about him. He had the nephew whose name was Lot, and Lot was a little bit, um, shall we say, lacking in character, lacking in wisdom. His uncle Abraham had to save him more than once, and Lot, frankly, did not live well, and he did not end well. 
So if you remember, there's a story in Scripture about two cities called Sodom and Gomorrah. And some of you have heard about those stories. This was in the time of Abraham, and they, they were filled with immorality and filled with violence, and God was like, I am done with this. And so God goes to Abraham and says, I'm going to judge, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, no, you can't. What if there's some righteous people there? Because guess who lives there? Lot. His nephew Lot lives there. And Lot, frankly, likes living there. And his family has, has grown up there. And you can see in the way they treat each other and the way that they um, interact with people there that Lot and his family really have taken on some of the nasty ways of the city that they live in. And so there's this whole story that happens. We're not going to go into it. I'm just giving you background right now. But, but this whole thing ends with Lot and his wife and his two adult daughters fleeing the city. And as they flee, the wife dies. And so now it's just Lot and his two daughters. And they're living in a cave. And the two daughters are concerned that the family line will die out. Now, I'm not going to get specific because it's Sunday morning. But there's alcohol involved. And then they get pregnant. Can I just let you fill in the, the read between the lines there? So they get pregnant by their dad. And the oldest one has a son. And the son's name is Moab. That is the beginning of the people group known as Moab. That's Ruth's people. That's the nation that she's coming from. And Moab throughout the Bible is constantly a problem for Israel. Constantly an issue. There was a story you may remember when um, a prophet named Balaam was hired to curse Israel. Moab did that. Moab hired him to curse Israel. Moab sent um, women into Israel kind of undercover to sort of turn the men's heads and get them to worship false gods. And it was an intentional strategy on Moab's part to weaken Israel, weaken the nation of Israel. Um, There's just ongoing stories of Moab just being in and out and in and out of Israel's history all the time. And it's always a problem. They, they, have, they worship numerous gods. One of the gods that they worship is named Chemosh, who demands human sacrifice. Okay? Moab is bad news. So it's odd that Naomi and Elimelech and their two boys move to Moab. Even though there's some kind of a famine, it's odd that that's where they choose to go. So let's keep going. Page 121 in the story. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons, and they married Moabite women. Again, odd. It's not how Israelites are supposed to live. They're supposed to, you know, marry people that serve the same God and are part of the same people group and all of this. And so this is what happens. And then 10 years later, both of Naomi's sons die, and now she's left in Moab with two Moabite daughters-in-law. And Naomi's contribution until now to these two daughters-in-law, her contribution to their lives was her two sons. That's where her value is found. That's where her worth and her identity is found. And now they're gone. She has no husband. She has no sons. And she has nothing left to offer these two younger women, these two Moabite daughters-in-law. Naomi has nothing left even for herself. And so really, all of her hopes and her dreams are over. And so she decides she's going home. Naomi's going back to Israel. Now, home is not going to be a lot better. She's going to go back to Israel, to the town of Bethlehem in Israel. And um, when she gets there, she's still not going to have family, really. And she's still not going to have, you know, much of an income of any kind. And she's still not really going to have purpose in life. And she's probably dreading the moment when she gets back to Bethlehem because, you know, it's going to go out on Instagram. And then all the people are going to be like, oh, my goodness, Naomi's home. And then they're all going to come up and they're going to go, hi, Naomi, how are you? 
right? And she's supposed to go, great! And she's not great. She's not even okay. Life is a mess. She's lost everything. So she's going to go home, and she, everybody's going to ask questions about what's happened all the years she's been away. And then they're going to they're gonna pity her, and they're going to tip their head and go, oh, that's too bad. And we all hate dealing with that. And then there's always one, there's always one who gets really smug and is going to go, hmm, I guess you shouldn't have gone to Moab, eh? Like, really, there's always one that's a little bit, but at least she'll be home, and so that will help. And so that's her plan. She's going to go back to Israel. And then Ruth the Moabite, that's what she's called through this whole story. Ruth the Moabite, the daughter-in-law, says, Naomi, I'm going with you. And Naomi goes, no, you're not. And Ruth goes, yes, I am. And Naomi goes, no, you're not. And Ruth goes, yes, I am. And they go back and forth until Ruth the Moabite, makes this extraordinary statement. And she says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And may the Lord, Israel's God, deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. So Ruth the Moabite makes this solemn vow, Naomi, I'm going with you. I'm going to serve Israel's God. I'm going to be part of Israel. I'm going to do all of this. I'm going to be with your people, and I'm going to be buried beside you. So, so the two of them go back to Israel. So they get to Bethlehem, and Naomi takes a deep breath, you know, as everyone goes, ah, Naomi's home, and they ask her all the questions, and her answers are, yep, I'm back. My husband's dead. My sons are dead. Moab was bad. And I'm coming back humiliated and empty, and I think it's God's fault. And that's a conversation ender. So nobody wants to hang around because how do you respond to that? It's awkward. And so nobody really hangs around, and nobody knows who Ruth is. She's just the Moabite, and they're not going to talk to her. And so they go off, and now it's just Ruth and Naomi on their own. And Ruth says to Naomi, well... I I guess, you know, we need to eat. We need to get some food and we don't have any income. So I'll go figure that out, Ruth says. And, And the good news is that even though they're in this place now of poverty and they're hurting and they don't really have much, in Israel's culture, there's provision made to help people that are in exactly a situation like this. So Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22 says, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them... For the poor and the foreigner, even the Moabite, residing among you. So Ruth the Moabite goes and does what all the foreigners do, what all the poor people do, even if they're not foreigners. She goes to a field, any field, and she joins the rest of the poor people who are following behind the harvesters. So the harvesters, the hired hands, they do the work of harvesting. And then those who are in need are allowed to follow along behind and pick up stuff that's left over, that's intentionally left over so that they can have food. And this is what she does so that she and Naomi can eat. Now, as it turns out, the field that Ruth has picked belongs to a man named Boaz. And Boaz is a very good man, which is a good thing because we all live in the real world. None of us live in some weird little bubble where nothing ever goes wrong. And we all understand that law or no law um, you can imagine there's a, there's a little bit of vulnerability to an impoverished Moabite woman picking up grain in a field behind the harvesting men. 
And, and Ruth's position and her activity is screaming vulnerability. And if something goes wrong, if something happens, there's probably not going to be anybody that's going to advocate for her. There's probably not going to be anybody that's going to help or take a stand for justice. And so this is the position she's in. And Boaz seems to know this. And he is a good man. And furthermore, he understands that not everyone is. And so when he realizes what's happening and he realizes, finds out who Ruth is, he's very insistent that she stay safe. And so this is what he says to her on page 123. My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And when you are, whenever you're thirsty, you go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. And he makes space for her. And by the way, the cool thing is he notices her because of her character, because he has heard who she is, even though she's a Moabite. And so he says to her, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland, and you came to live with a people you did not know before. He notices her character. He sees her for who she is, not just a Moabite. And he notices her vulnerability. He takes extra measures to give her safe space. So he's a, he's a good man. Now, also, as it turns out, Boaz is a relative. He's one of Naomi's in-laws. And Naomi is slowly realizing as she's just living there and watching all of this unfold, maybe she still does have something to offer this Moabite daughter-in-law. And so the barley harvest comes to an end, and then the wheat harvest comes to an end. And then it says in the Bible that one day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now, next part of the story is strange. Okay. It's just strange. If you don't know it, just, I'm just, there's a cultural thing going on here. There's a whole cultural system going on here. Naomi, actually, if you had taken the time and you read chapter nine before you came today, you would have seen where Naomi referenced it earlier when she was telling her two daughters-in-law, you can't come back to Israel with me. What are you going to do? Wait for me to have another baby boy, wait for him to grow up, and then you're going to marry him? So this is, this is, she goes, you're not going to do that. This is the system she's referring to. There is a system in Israel at this time and in this culture, there's a law that's called the guardian redeemer system. And the custom or the law was that if a woman's husband died before they had children, then his brother would marry her, just go, ew, okay, little ew, her husband's brother would marry her, and, and then the first child is born is the first guy's son so that the land and the inheritance and the family name can be carried on. This is their culture. This is the law that's going on there. Now, it seems that by this time in Israel's history, this custom or this law had been extended even past brothers to a maybe extended family of some kind, and so there's this guardian redeemer system that everybody seems to know about, okay? So Naomi realizes that Boaz could be that guardian redeemer because he's a relative. And Boaz seems to be a good guy. He seems to be doing the right thing. He's taken a protective interest in Ruth. And so maybe, just maybe, maybe, maybe he's a good enough guy that he'd be willing to marry a Moabite widow in order to make sure that her first husband's land and inheritance can stay in the family. Now, can we just pause here and talk about Boaz for a minute? We've been saying he's a good guy, and he is. 
But his background has some unexpected bits in it as well. So you may remember when we talked about um, Joshua bringing the children of Israel into the promised land, and the first place they went to was Jericho. And in Jericho, there was a woman, and her name was Rahab, and she was a Canaanite, and she was a prostitute. And she helped the Israelite spies when they came in. And so when they came in and took the city of Jericho, they saved her because of the favor that she had done for them. And it turns out she had, she had then gone and she had joined Israel, had become part of Israel's nation, become part of their faith, this Canaanite prostitute woman. And as it turns out, she actually is listed as Boaz's mother. Now, we think it's actually his grandmother or maybe a generation before that, but she's definitely part. This Canaanite prostitute is part of Boaz's family background. And then, so I I just want you to know that. So then we go back to Ruth, the Moabite. Now, she's in this place where Naomi's going, hey, maybe, maybe Boaz could be the guardian redeemer. But Ruth can't just walk up and propose to Boaz. It's not how it's done. And this guardian redeemer thing is not her custom. So she does what Naomi tells her to do, which again speaks to the depth of their relationship because Naomi says to her, you need to go and lie down at Boaz's feet and he will, uh, in the middle of the night, and he will understand that this means let's, let's, uh, let's look at this guardian redeemer system. So the next part of the story, again, is, is strange. And, and Naomi knows what it means. And so Ruth obeys her mother-in-law. And she goes in the middle of the night to where Boaz is sleeping outside because he's guarding his grain. It's the end of the harvest. All the other men are there as well. And she goes and she just, she just uncovers his feet. That's it. And then lays down at his feet. And it says in the Bible, in the middle of the night, something startled the man, I guess. And he turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. And so he knows what this means. Naomi has known what this means. He knows what this means. He knows that Ruth is saying, you know, maybe you can redeem me. Maybe you can be the guardian redeemer for my family. Maybe you can marry me so that my first husband's land can stay in the family and and all of this. And so that way she can have protection and value because she's a wife and a mother. And he's smart and he understands it and he's savvy and he knows how these cultural systems work. So he talks it out with Ruth. He's protective of her reputation, sends her home before anybody sees that she's even been there, just says, trust me, I'll get back to you. So then he goes to the city gate, Boaz does, which is where uh, business happens. It's like city hall here. It's where you would get a permit. So he goes to the city gate, and at the city gate are are a bunch of elders of the city um, and witnesses who, who pay attention to the business that's happened at the gate. And he's waiting there because, as it turns out, there's another relative that has first dibs. And so he waits at the gate uh, for, this, for this other guy to come through. We don't even know his name. And he waits there, Boaz does, and he sees the other guy come through. And he goes, hey, how you doing? And the guy goes, I'm good, Boaz. How are things with you? He goes, I'm good. He goes, hey, listen, uh, remember Elimelech, our relative, and he had this wife, Naomi, and they went to Moab, and he died. And he, anyway, Naomi's selling the land now. Just, you know, you get first dibs on Guardian Redeemer. You want, you want the land. And the guy goes, oh, totally, I, I could do that. And uh, Boaz goes, awesome, that's great. So then also you'll just marry Ruth the Moabite because that's part of the deal. And the guy goes, excuse me? And the guy goes, I, oh, I, mm, I can't do that. I don't know why. Maybe he doesn't want to marry a Moabite. Maybe he already has a wife. But for whatever reason, he goes, I'm out. And so Boaz goes, oh, well, I mean, okay, then I guess I will. And they shake hands and sign a contract. They actually exchange sandals, it says. That's how they did it. 
And and they they settled. This is what's going to happen. And 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 here's here's what caught me this week. Okay, so if you have heard this story before and you're going, mm-hmm, it's good. This is the part that caught me this week, and I bet it's going to catch you. Okay, so when they finish doing this business deal, this is what's going to happen. The witnesses and the elders at the gate pronounce a blessing on Boaz, and this is what they say. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. Well, that's nice. That's a nice blessing. Rachel and Leah are basically the mothers of of Israel. It was their 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. So, So that's nice. And then they said, may you have standing in Ephrathah, which is their tribe, and be famous in Bethlehem, which is their town. So that's, that's nice. Pretty standard stuff. And then these elders, these witnesses, I don't know, maybe they raise a glass, you know, cheers, I'm not sure. But they say, through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And I went, what? Because I don't know why they would bring this up, and I didn't know why it would be a blessing. Because I know who these people are. Now, can we just, can we just pause? And I'm going to talk about this a little bit, okay? So we got this family that, that, that they're saying, Boaz, may your family be like this. That of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Let's talk about Judah and Tamar and Perez. Judah was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, one of the founders of, of the tribes of Israel. And it was, by the way, if you remember, his little brother Joseph was sold into slavery Judah's idea. It was his idea to do that generations ago. And he wasn't the oldest of the 12 brothers, but he was the one that all the others listened to. He's the leader. So sometime in, in former generations, when, when, when Judah some had said, hey, let's sell our younger brother into slavery, that's a good idea. Sometime between that and then later on in his life when he became a changed man, because he did, Somewhere in between there, this little story with Tamar happened, okay? Judah had three sons, and the oldest one, he married to a woman named Tamar. And the Bible says that the first son was wicked, and he died, and there were no children. So the guardian redeemer system kicks in, and Judah marries his second son to Tamar, who also, he is wicked, and he dies, and there are no children. And so now Judah sends Tamar home, and says, you need to live as a widow, you know, very righteous, very holy, very all of this stuff, until his third son grows up, because he's supposed to marry his third son to Tamar. But the truth is, he's a little freaked out that his first two sons died, and he has no intention of following the law and marrying his third son to this woman named Tamar. But she has no other options. And so time goes by, she's living as a widow, she has no income, she's not really, doesn't really have, you know, safety and protection and all that. She needs a child and she needs to have this, this guardian redeemer law happen. And so she's trying to contact Judah going, your third son is grown up, you gotta, and he's not taking the calls. He's sending them straight to voicemail, he's not answering her, he's ignoring her, and he's not going to send his third son to marry her. So... She decides she's going to take matters into her own hands. And Tamar then disguises herself as a religious prostitute with a veil, goes and stands by the side of the road where she knows her father-in-law will walk by and will notice her, which tells you about his character and what she knew about it. And he does notice her. He doesn't recognize her. 
you fill in the blanks, and she gets pregnant. Now, when Judah finds out that his widowed daughter-in-law, who's supposed to be living all holy and righteous, is pregnant, he gets very self-righteous. He's very huffy about it. He goes, I just can't believe that she would do that. What a horrible woman. She's just awful because clearly she has not been living. And he's quite self-righteous about it and quite huffy about it until she informs him that he's the father. And then he goes, oh. And he literally says, she is more righteous than I because I wouldn't give her my third son. And so as far as we can tell then, he takes care of her, but their relationship is purely platonic after that. And she gives birth to twins. One is named Zerah, and the other is named Perez, who is one of Boaz's, Boaz's ancestors. And so here's Boaz at the gate, just made this deal. Land, wife, all of this. And the elders at the gate say, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. No, thank you. I don't want that blessing pronounced. I mean, there's nothing like toasting a bride and a groom with reminders of the secrets in their family, right? Let's just talk about the gross things that have happened in your family background. And, uh, and, and we'll just bring that up and say, hey, and may that just carry on. No. And I don't know why they said that as a blessing. It maybe was appropriate in that time and place. There's no hint that it wasn't. But maybe it's because of the guardian-redeemer parallel. I don't know. But still, can I? Still. So Boaz and Ruth get married. She gets pregnant. They have a baby. His name is Obed. And they all live happily ever after. And here's the question that made my head explode this week. Why is this story in the Bible? Why is the book of Ruth the Moabite in Scripture? Why does it get its own entire book of the Bible? You know, there's no hero, there's no prophet, there's no king, there's no crisis, there's no deliverer, there's no miracle, there's no, there's no nothing. There's no teaching, there's no theology in this book. It's not even a particularly notable moment in Israel's history. We think it's during the time of Gideon the judge, but we're not sure. And most of the nation of Israel, most of probably even the tribe, didn't even know Boaz and Ruth even existed. They're just a regular family with kind of a mixed background of weird family secrets, and they're not even really secrets. Why? Why is this in Scripture? So then I backed up and I said, well, let me look at this from another example, from another perspective. How many books of the Bible are actually named for a person? Because I find it weird that Moses doesn't get a book named after him. Joseph doesn't get a book named after John the Baptist. No book named for John the Baptist, but Ruth gets one. So I did some counting for what it's worth. Out of 66 books in the Bible, 39 of them are named for a person. And out of those 39, 18 were Old Testament prophets, so that makes sense. 11 of them were New Testament church leaders, makes sense. Four of them were the Gospels. They told the story of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Five of them were significant historical figures like like Ezra or Nehemiah or Joshua and Ruth the Moabite. What? Uh, Why is the story of Ruth the Moabite in Scripture? I mean, out of those 39 books of the Bible that are named for people, there are only two named for women. One of them was a queen who saved her people from genocide and Ruth the Moabite. 
Why is it there? Ruth from Moab, a nation founded by incest, uh, 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 whose religion involves human sacrifice, whose history, the, the history of Moab with, with Israel involves ongoing intentional conflict and confusion. And she marries Boaz, who, who's an Israelite, sure, and he's a good guy, but his family background includes a Canaanite prostitute named Rahab. And his family background includes a tribal father named Judah who's got some really dark moments and, and has this, this whole awful story with his daughter-in-law named Tamar. That's Boaz's background. Why is the book of Ruth in Scripture? And the book of Ruth ends, the, the actual book ends with Scripture telling us that these two people, Ruth and Boaz, who are nobody's hero and have sketchy backgrounds and questionable credentials on both sides, become the great, become the great grandparents of the greatest king that Israel ever had, King David. And then Matthew tells us in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, they became part of the ancestral lineage of Jesus Christ. And as I looked at this this week, I went, that's why the book of Ruth is in Scripture, to show us that there was room in God's plan for somebody like her. And what amazes me as I look at this story is not that there were ugly moments in her genealogy. Because can we just openly admit that for most of us, there's some secrets and there's some ugly moments in our own family backgrounds and for some of us in our own lives. So it doesn't amaze me that they're there. It amazes me that they're not hidden away. It amazes me that even before the birth of Jesus, before they knew what the significance was, the book of Ruth was saved as part of Israel's ancient sacred text, this unimportant Moabite woman that we should never have heard of. Ruth, the Moabite, a woman, a foreigner, a person, a nobody with a sketchy background is in Scripture and gets her own book in Scripture long before Jesus is born, I believe, to drop on us the mind-blowing understanding that there's room for everybody in God's story. Everybody, even a Moabite. And so can I say to you today, I don't care how bad you are. I don't care how bad you think your family history is. There is room for you in God's story. I don't care how unimportant you think you are. There is room for you in God's story. And you go, Pastor Patty, you don't know. I don't care if you feel like you don't belong. If you feel like a Moabite in ancient Israel, there is room for you in God's story. But Pastor Patty, you don't know. You don't, you don't know. You don't know the secrets. You don't know. What I've done, you don't know. If you knew, you wouldn't let me, you wouldn't even be talking to me. The number of people that have said that to me over the years, if you knew, I don't care. There is room for you in God's story if you choose to be in it. There's this moment when Ruth chose, when she said to her mother-in-law, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. And there's room for you in God's story if you choose to be part of it. 
And not in some second class, well, okay, you can sit in the back, you can be on the fringes, we're a little ashamed of you, but it's okay, you can still come. Not like that. I mean, and in all the way in, you can be a key part of God's story because he welcomes you here because, yes, sin is a problem. And, yes, there is, in this story of Ruth, there is sin and pain and destruction and ugliness all over this really beautiful story. But all that ugliness and all that pain and all that sin doesn't have to have the last word. And it doesn't have to define who you are. As it turns out, our God can take incestuous, violent, um, false God-worshipping, immoral, selfish, self-righteous people and bring good out of it. It turns out he can do that. And you go, how? I don't know. My brain explodes on it too. But there is room in God's story for you. And way back in ancient Israel before Jesus ever came, God is making sure that we see the hint in Ruth's story that it's not just for Israel. It's not just for the people of God. When God made that covenant with Abraham, he said, you're going to have countless descendants and you're going you're to have land and all nations will be blessed through you. There's room for everybody in God's story. And centuries later, the Apostle Peter, after Jesus has been born and lived and died and rose again, the Apostle Peter, he's wrestling with this and he's going, but is Jesus, is God, does his story, does it include everybody? I think maybe it's just for the, for the Israelite people. It's just for the Jewish people. Is it for everybody? I don't know if it's for everybody because everybody else is unclean. And God sends him a message and says, do not call anything or anyone impure that God has made clean. Don't exclude anybody from God's story that God himself has included because all people are going to be blessed through, through this covenant that God has made with Abraham and through his people. There's room in God's story for you. So I'm going to ask if you would stand at this moment and if you would bow your heads. And I just want to give us a moment to reflect as we do almost every Sunday. And I want to say to you first, if you are here and you're one of those that would come to me and say, but Patty, you don't know. You don't know who I am. You don't know what I've done. You don't know my family background. You don't know. And I just want to say, if you're one of those people, and and we've all got our heads bowed and our eyes closed. If you're one of those people, please hear me say, there is room in God's story for you. There's room in this church for you. And you go, but you don't know my background. You don't know ours. We are followers of Jesus who have been redeemed. Followers of Jesus, most of us, with things that we would prefer people not know. With stuff in our family stories that we go, ah, wish that wasn't there. And God has welcomed us into his story. And you are welcome also. And that's the end. For the rest of us that are here, God, at this moment, we're part of this church. 
we're, we're this afternoon again reaching out into our community. We, we believe that we carry the light of Jesus out into our world. God, would you make us a church, make us a congregation that carries this wholehearted message, there's room for everyone in God's story. God, would you help us to never exclude somebody that you have said is to be included? Would you help us never to push back and make somebody a second-class citizen, but help this to be a place and a family and a group of people where we just say, you're welcome, we were messed up too. But there was room for us in God's story, and there's room for you. God, would you make that so true in our hearts and help us to learn to carry that to our world? And as we walk out of here today, we're going to, go to exams and we're going to go to our jobs and we're going to go to family and friends and neighborhoods. We're asking that you would help us to carry Jesus well to all those places. Help us to carry this message that there's room for everyone. Help us to do good. Help us to love each other and help us to reveal Jesus to everyone. Would you go with us, keep us safe, bring us back next week. I speak blessing, God, over everyone here as we go out of here carrying the light of Jesus. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Make sure you stick around. If you want to receive prayer, there's people at the ministry stations that will be happy to pray with you and connect with you. Our Christmas in the park is this afternoon at 4.30 and 6 o'clock. Other than that, grab a coffee downstairs, say hi to somebody. We'll see you this afternoon or next Sunday. God bless you.